Hey there, comrades. So this book is really long. So our recording went pretty long. So we are splitting this into two. Um, we are reading The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists by Robert Tressel. Part one is going to cover some character intros, Owen's lecture series. We kind of just lumped that all into one go because it made more sense for us. And plot wise, it's going to cover up to when Frankie goes to Sunday school. And that's where we're going to pick it up for part two. Okay, cool. Catch y'all later. Cats, my god. I'm telling the fucking Havana waves. Yeah. I was telling Abby about our Managua theory. There there's gotta be a van out there. Just I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's ridiculous. Every single fucking time. They're like, now is the time to run around. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hi listeners. <laughs> Hello everyone. Let's get into this book. We've got a lot to go through. It's a, it's a big long one. We're going to go over The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist by Robert Tressel, um, written in 1914. Uh, this is available on Project Gutenberg if you want to just check it out and read it. It's real long. Uh, I read it on my iPad like and split into like a regular page format. It was like 900 pages. Mm. Um, if you just download the PDF, it's closer to like three or 400. But yeah, it was it was a lot. <laughs> Yeah, if you read the graphic novel, that's mm-hmm. what I did. Uh, this is by Scarlett and Sophie Ricard. Mm-hmm. I think I only said one of the names last time. Yeah, yeah. But it would have got you there. Uh, <laughs> this is 336 pages. This includes the covers and stuff, too. But Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, great. You read the graphic novel. I read the real book. And no offense. That sounds pejorative. <laughs> the real book? <laughs> the real book. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm a slow reader. So this no worries. Me. This, this took me a long it. time. <laughs> so this is a semi-autobiographical novel uh, by Robert Noonan. Mm. Um, uh, Robert Tressel is a pen name. It's actually based off of a Tressel table, uh, spelled differently, T-R-E-S-T-L-E. Uh, basically like a work table. Like, you okay. know, you set up those little A-frame looking thingies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You can Google it, y'all. Um <laughs> And it's about house painters in a fictional English town of Mugsboro, uh, which was based on the coastal town of Hastings. Ah. Couple of trigger warnings up top. Uh, we're going to see some dark shit in this book, uh, but the main ones would be, you know, there is a suicide, uh, there is a sexual assault, and I would go ahead and say there's a lot of anti-fatness in the book as well, if that's something that's upsetting for you. But I would say it's a really good book, so let's get into it. Yeah, all right little background on the author. He was born in 1870 in Dublin, Ireland. He was the illegitimate son of a former inspector of the Royal Irish Constabulary. Uh, He had like his own family. So he kind of like, he pitched in like financially until his death, uh, but he didn't like hang out with him. (laughs) Okay. I was looking up to see if these were the black and tans. Mm. in ireland but they're not these are different guys those those were the like the uh the recruits uh auxiliaries Mm. were were the black and tans but these were the guys they were supporting i mean they were they were still like i mean it's still a cop yeah cops (laughs) occupying ireland (laughs) yeah not like a cool dude they sucked yeah um he was raised Catholic, uh, had a good education, and could speak multiple languages, but he left home like at age 16, declaring, quote, 
he would not live on the family income derived largely from absentee landlordism. So, like, pretty okay. cool dude early on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, spent most of his early life, uh, like early adult life, rather, uh, working in Johannesburg, South Africa. He got married and had a child there. Uh, he later divorced his wife and actually ended up keeping the child, Kathleen. This is where he starts getting involved in labor organizing, uh, socialism, and Irish nationalism. Some cool stuff. Yeah. Um, he is also heavily influenced by friend of the show, William Morris, which I think we mm. will see in this book. Okay, yeah. Um, in 1901, he comes back to England and starts working uh, as a painter there um, and also starts writing this book. He tries to immigrate to Canada, but dies on the way of pulmonary tuberculosis. He mm. didn't even make it out of the UK. I think he's like still in England when he died. Yeah. Uh, buried in a pauper's grave at age 40. Man. Rough yeah. life. Pretty rough. His book was rejected from multiple publishers, and he came close to like destroying it. And his daughter was like, hey, don't. <laughs> so yeah. um, she's the one who gets published posthumously in 1914, but it was like super abridged. Yeah. They took out the socialism, which I'm like, at that point, this is just like a Charles Dickens sad boy tale. You yeah, know, like, just, look at these poor people. <laughs> mm, just a tragedy. Like, yeah. what are you supposed to get from that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, first off, it must have been way shorter. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> there's a lot in here. So, yeah, I don't even know how that would work. In 1955, though, the, the full version was published. Mm, okay. Oh, another fun publishing fact. The original title, this is according to Wikipedia, was The Ragged Arst Philanthropist. <laughs> which is really funny. Raggedy ass. <laughs> These raggedy ass philanthropists. <laughs> Before we get diving into the plot, we're not going to go scene by scene or we'll be here for a fucking week. I've got things to do. <laughs> So we are going to kind of introduce the characters and then get into like a high level plot overview. Um, and we'll take some breaks to dissect some of the socialism in this book. The title comes from the idea that these men must be philanthropists as they are so eager to throw themselves into hard labor for their masters for very little pay. Ah, okay. There wasn't any real discussion of the title in the graphic no novel. in the book itself they will sometimes refer to workers as philanthropists but mm-hmm. it, like very obviously in a cheeky way yeah um but yeah no one's ever like we're ragged yeah no one says it obviously yeah so we're gonna start out at a house that's being renovated by rushton and co by the way this guy loves a punny name so anytime there's like a business or something like when he can, he loves a pun. So this is like rush it on is what mm, Rushton kind of stands for. Okay. I got the rush part, but yeah, rush it on. Okay. That's awesome. I mean, if you want more examples, the other firms in town are called Make Haste and Slog It, <laughs> Driver and Botch It, Smear It On and Leave It, <laughs> <laughs> and then also Dauber and Botch It. And I'm like, do you, you just use Botch It twice? Like Botch It's yeah. in both businesses. So I don't know. <laughs> it's really funny. So yeah, be on the lookout for puns. So yeah, we're starting at this house. It's nicknamed The Cave. And um, mm-hmm. some people think this is a reference to like the allegory of The Cave. Oh, because they're like getting enlightened? Yes. There? Yeah, because okay. that's where most of our, our lectures will take place. Okay, that makes sense. Our main character, if there is one, because it's a pretty broad book. It's not really like your typical novel structure, I would say. Right, it kind of follows a bunch of different vignettes, mm-hmm. sort of, or arcs. Yeah. yeah, different characters. I mean, I think it would work really well as a TV show in that way. Oh, yeah. Like, we're going to spend some time with this guy now. Yeah. 
So our main character, if we have one, is Frank Owen. He is a sign painter and more on the decorative side of, of uh, art and, and labor. He might be a reference to Robert Owen, who was um, in that kind of decorative arts labor movement. Um, he was kind of pals with William Morris and all in that crew. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a socialist and is throughout the book trying to convince his fellow workers of his views. Oh, it's a hard life. All right, let me show you a picture. Yeah, of... yeah, you've got the graphic novel pictures. Let me see. Yeah. I don't know if we'll be able to post any of that. Yeah. Because it's kind of, you know, it's copyright stuff. It is a little weird. So, uh, sorry, listeners. Or whatever. <laughs> Whatever's the right term for that. But the guy on the right, that's Owen. Oh, he looks nice. Yeah, he's very sweet. Okay. To give listeners a description, uh, he's always got a red scarf. Mm. Sometimes he's got like a flat cap. Sometimes he doesn't. I guess at the house he doesn't, but usually at the job he does. Uh, kind of a long face, brown hair, very pale. So he is seems to be educated, but he is very poor. And they never really give an explanation for like how that came to be. Like, mm-hmm. I guess he's self-taught. Um, he lives with his wife, Nora, who is frequently weak with overwork, and his son, Frankie. Um, it's really like tragic all their best food goes to him and he is also an adorable little socialist (laughs) very proud yeah he's got some good moments (laughs) he does i love frankie frank uh frank senior uh had gone before the book he we find out he had gone to london to find work but it only further strained his finances and so he had to like come back home so they're like really Mm. in debt Okay. Um, he suffers from an unnamed illness that mostly manifests in a cough. Uh, that's probably based on the author's TB. Yeah. And, you know, several points throughout the book, he either like goes to a doctor, you know, or has been before. And the doctor's like, yeah, you need to rest and like eat good food and like buy this medicine. He's like, I can't afford to do any of those things. Right. Do like this ridiculous regimen <laughs> of like, hey, drink like a pint of warm milk. Yes. Drink another pint of warm milk. Like, and he's just, he's like, this is impossible. Yeah. He's like, you might as well have told me to go to the fucking moon. Yeah. He is an atheist, uh, something that makes him and his family quite unpopular among other people in the town. Moving on to another character we meet pretty early on, Bob Crass. This guy is the foreman on on these jobs. Um, He is totally willing to betray his fellow workers to gain favor with the bosses. He gives himself the easiest jobs. And in return, other workers will suck up to him and buy him drinks to get on his good side. Um, He's a real fucking asshole. Yeah, so he's the guy that was beside him in that panel. Mm, okay. He's got... He's got a little bowler hat. He looks like uh, Bluto in Popeye. He does to look me. like Bluto. Big <laughs> like Bluto energy. Yeah, he's got <laughs> like a big black beard mm-hmm. and like kind of an upturned nose. He's a big guy. He's yes. got the bowler hat. Is that... Do they poke at him more in the novel? For his fatness? Yeah. Yes. Pretty okay. much every bad guy character in this is going to be fat. Yeah, they they are in this too visually in the graphic novel, but I don't think, I don't remember them harping on it as a thing, like, in words. No, yeah, in the descriptions, they definitely do. They're like, he's obese, and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Like At it, one point, yeah. they do that with a character who is one of the council guys. Mm-hmm. He's, like, leaned back in a chair, and then the the next panel has him, like, as a pig doing Oh, my gosh, yeah, like, yeah. back in a chair, you know, <laughs> kind of animal farmy, I guess. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, but they don't, you know, engage in as much of that in, in the graphic novel. Yeah, like they are fat, but it's not like people are po- like staring at them and stuff. Like. Yeah. 
So Crass, he's depicted as having gained a bit of money because, like, he's very scrupulous in that way. Um, or unscrupulous? Unscrupulous. Well, wait. What do, what do you mean? I mean, he's like very, he's like, shady? conniving. Okay, yeah, shady. unscrupulous. Unscrupulous. You could say scrupulous, like, oh, he's saving and stuff for money. I mean, I think he does, but I think it's mostly that he scams people. Yeah. Um, he's dressed a bit nicer, hence the bowler hat. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a conservative, or as the book will call them, Tories. Because we're in England. Next up in the Hall of Assholes, we have Alf Slime. Um, uh. He is a teetotaler. He is religious, uh, but he fucking sucks. Um, he also takes on secret work with Crass to make extra money on the side. Like they'll go sneak off and work on projects and not tell anyone about it um, so they can get paid more. Um, we'll, we'll find out a lot more about Slime later. There's Slime. Ugh, he looks terrible. He's uh, got these protruding ears. A generally droopy face. Very droopy. Looks like he's melting. Uh, he's slimy. He's always got his eyes kind of half closed. When he does show it, he's got a flat cap. But when he does show his hair, it's kind of like plastery to the side. Kind of comb over? Yeah, yeah. Kind of mm. comb over going. That's kind of how I pictured him. Like very, very sleazy man. Yeah. I mean, slimy. But like <laughs> morally in the in the judgment of that society would yeah. have been seen as upstanding definitely guy, definitely you know? he is like they emphasize his like religiosity he's mm-hmm. he goes out with the um the guys with the lantern that's like god is merciful or uh-huh. something and he goes out with them and like does he's very know, publicly religious yeah um next we have bert white um he is the kind of the apprentice at the firm um he's very frail he's like a teen boy and this kind of gets into some of the circumstances in, in this time period. His mom actually struck a deal with the firm to like secure his apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. She had to pay a 10 pound fee, which is a lot back then, Whoa. in order for him to learn the trade. Um, and then he also earns no wages for a year in addition to that. But what ends up happening in these kinds of apprenticeships, and you see this later on with other examples, is you just end up with the roughest work. You're not actually learning anything. Like, you're just a, you're basically a fucking slave. Yeah. They send him on, like, just little go-fetch missions and mm-hmm. stuff. And I think, uh, what's his face? Crass try- makes fun of it at some point. He's like, I was supposed to be teaching him a trade, but I'm just you know, yeah. sending him on. In yeah, in the graphic novel, he's portrayed as kind of younger, like not yeah. not like a teen so much as maybe like ten or something. Yeah, I mean, maybe I was like reading too much into that. I pictured him as a teen, but mm-hmm. I don't. Th- they never like said his age. I don't think. Okay, so, I don't recall if they. Did. I don't remember if they did. If they did, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I pictured him as like sixteen or something. But yeah, he looks way younger in the in the book in the graphic novel. He looks up to Frank a lot and occasionally gets to assist him on more decorative work. Um, his mother uh, gets extra work at the chapel and, you know, uh, occasionally will get extra work as a charwoman, which I guess, like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't know. I assume it's someone who, like, handles your coal for you, maybe. It seems like a servant kind of task. Um, I guess we could just Google it. That's what I was going to do. Just Google it. A woman employed to clean houses or office. Okay. So like a, like a housekeeper. Yeah. So, yeah, she kind of just, like, scrapes by with extra work. Uh, let's see. Next is William Easton. He is another workman there. He has a wife named Ruth and a son named Freddie. Uh, we'll we'll check in on him later with some stuff. Jack Linden is the oldest man on the team. He lives with his wife, and he also took in his daughter-in-law Mary and her children Elsie and Charlie after his son died in the war. Uh, they mention which war, but I don't have it written down here. <laughs> 
Um, the daughter-in-law takes in sewing for extra money. Uh, but yeah, they're pretty poor. Pretty much everyone in this book, unless I say otherwise, is poor. So <laughs> just assume. Yeah. Uh, Joe Philpot, I like him. Uh, he's kind of an older man who's very fond of alcohol. He is a widower whose children died in infancy. Um, but he seems he seems really sweet. Yes, Hawkins not, is not important enough to be mentioned, but I wrote him down for some reason. <laughs> Barrington is the only other worker that we'll probably get into a lot. Um, he is rumored to have been disowned from a rich family. Uh, he's quiet at first, but over time seems to agree with Owen's socialism. So keep an eye out for Barrington. What does he look like in the book? Uh, I only have a sad picture of him right now. I mean, I could go find one, but this is the first one I came to. He looks kind of fancy with his little mustache. Yeah, they give him a pencil mustache and, you know, a, a nice, neat parted hair. He does have an air, air of civility and Gentlemanly. Yeah, a genteel sort of mm-hmm. uh, appeal. And they call him the professor. Oh, yeah. Do that That's in. right. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of characters in this book, so we're not going to go over every single one. There's other workers that are named, too, but you don't have to know everything. Right. We'll get, we'll introduce more if we need yeah, to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right now, all the only other people you need to know is Rushton is the owner of the firm. Um, the name Sweater is probably going to come up a couple times, too. He's kind of the top businessman in town, active in local politics, uh, the owner of the cave where they're working. And when he appears at the worksite, people are, like, freaking out, like, trying to get a tip from him and stuff and, like, fawning all over him. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's Sweater. Oh, my God. Of course. Of course. He is described as fat in the book, and they really lean into it. Yeah, so he's a large guy in the graphic novel, too. Old guy. Kind of pink. What you would think of as, like, yeah, British capitalist-looking guy. (laughs) Uh, Top hat? Yeah, top hat. Top hat, totally. And there's Rushton. Mm, Okay, okay. A little bit more, like, puggish look. Yeah, he looks more like... I mean, he's a younger guy, I guess, in comparison. Mm -hmm. So he's maybe more able to throw his weight around and like kind of be up in your face or something yeah he looks aggro yeah yeah that's (laughs) he looks like he wants to fight people he does (laughs) okay now that we've learned a million names let's get into the plot (laughs) (laughs) so they're working at the cave many of the scenes take place during work breaks where the workers gather for tea and talk about politics Uh, We start with a discussion on fiscal policy, which I guess is fiscal policy. Um, (laughs) This book is heavy in like British syntax, you know, working class Cockney stuff. So it's really fun. Sometimes there were whole sentences where I'm like, what the fuck did you just say? Like, I I don't know what that is. Uh, But you can, it was still pretty readable, like all in all. And I think it was like an interesting, like, I'm glad they did it. It was cool. Yeah. You have to you just put yourself in that mindset of like, mm-hmm. oh, if I read this in an accent, maybe it'll make more sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Every now and then you're like, wait, what the fuck? Because they add a like, they will add an H in front of things like for obscure, like the hobscure. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. A hyper, uh, a hyper correction. This is something you see in certain dialects. They'll do that with the with H. They'll mm. say H. Mm, like herb. Well, yeah, but I mean like literally saying the letter oh. H, you would say H. Weird. Yeah. But that's, again, certain dialects. Not everyone does that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess uh, I, I read like a couple selections that you showed me from mm-hmm. that. And it was a little, I thought it was a little thicker of an accent portrayal than in, or a dialect portrayal than in the graphic novel. I was going to ask, yeah, if they went it's so hard there, for 
Like if you're, we're talking about this scene here, uh, Easton says, what do you think of this here physical policy, Mr. Crass? <laughs> it sounds like they're like going to do calisthenics. He says, ain't thought much about it, Easton. I'll never worry my head about politics. So they do do like Ed and stuff. Yeah, Ed. And then Lyndon says, argrifying about politics is generally in so. Argrifying. Argrifying, yeah. I like that. Or ar- maybe. <laughs> Argufying about politics. So yeah, they do a lot of that. They definitely do it, yeah. <laughs> I, I will I think it probably is thicker in the book. Like if if I were doing a graphic novel of this, I I would probably tone it down because like you're already having to comprehend a lot visually mm-hmm. and like throwing in a bunch of apostrophes and shit is gonna be difficult. Yeah. Alright, so they're getting into a discussion on tariffs, uh, which quickly turns into just bashing on foreigners in general. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, Crass, as we mentioned, is on the conservative side. So he's just like, I saw these Italians and like gets real aggro about it immediately. uh, And this happens a lot. uh, Some of the men dismiss this discussion as useless. Uh, You know, politics are too touchy of a topic or that it's not for the likes of them. Mm, Yeah. Um, Owen challenges this and is like, you still fucking vote. So like, (laughs) you probably should learn about it. Yeah, he's... Well, I think I like his perspective of it. It's like, yeah, it's kind. Of, it matters to me because you're dumbass is voting. <laughs> exactly. Like it's gonna affect me. So maybe you shouldn't vote, or maybe you should bother to be. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, yeah. Because I think Crass tells him like, who who cares? Like, what's the matter to you? You know. Mm-hmm. So then Owen starts his first lecture. We're gonna go ahead and cover all of Owen's lectures now uh, because they are sprinkled throughout the book, but I think it'll just make more sense to like get him out of the way up top. Okay, yeah. Um, His first lecture though is on the causes of poverty because you know, they're all saying, oh, well we need free trade because you know, that'll help us, you know, reduce prices and blah, blah, blah. Um, And then people who are against that, you know, the the liberals in the the company are like, no, that's not the answer at all. We actually need like more, um, what is their solution? Because it's protectionism, which is which is, yeah. I guess they need more protectionism instead of free trade. Well, they say uh, free trade or tariff reform, mm-hmm. you know, and then they're they're talking about the causes of poverty. Is uh-huh. that what we're saying? And one of the big ones they say overpopulation. Yes, I have a whole list of the things they suggest because it's a lot of things. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah, you're at free trade, uh, overpopulation, alcohol. That's a big one. Yeah. People just don't want to work. <laughs> yep. There's plenty what's too lazy to work. Yep. Uh, machinery. You know, stop me if you heard some of these before. <laughs> uh, some, some a little weirder ones, I guess, for the time, normal for the time, weirder for nowadays. Women taking all the jobs. Yeah. Uh, too much education. Again, that sentiment of like, it's not for the likes of us. Early marriages. Uh, Slime is like, you shouldn't get married until you can provide for a family. A single man is uh, much more able to take care of himself than a family. And there's a lot of familiar phrases of, oh, poverty's inevitable. You know, quote, there's always been rich and poor in the world and there always will be. And then they, every one of these, Owen's like, that's stupid. That's stupid. That's really fucking stupid. Like, he's just (laughs) shutting shit down. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, okay, you're so fucking smart. Like, why? What is poverty? And so... Owen is like, well, first off, we have to establish what does poverty mean? Um, and he explains that money is not wealth and it's actually useless. And of course, all the men laughed at him like, oh, I guess you don't want to get paid. <laughs> I mean, I, I think he breaks it down pretty well. He's like, if you were on a desert island and you had, you know, a sack full of cash versus a sack full of food, you'd rather have the food. Yeah. What would literally 
be richer in that sense, mm-hmm. like more useful to you. So he's defining poverty as uh, the inability to secure all the benefits of civilization, both essentials and pleasures, which I think is important. Yeah. He's talking some real classic marks here. He talks about a uh, kind of the birthright that we all have. Uh, I've got a quote here. What we call civilization, the accumulation of knowledge, which has come down to us from our forefathers, is the fruit of thousands of years of human thought and toil, is by right the common heritage of all. Yeah. Stuff you're probably familiar with if you've listened to this podcast before. For real. That's (laughs) the diggers all for all, you know. Definitely the diggers. I'd say there's a lot of Kropotkin in here, too, in general. Mm -hmm. Next, he makes the argument that these workers are often, these, these guys are actually worse off than slaves, and later makes an analogy to horses, uh, because it's like, well, you're like, at least they would make sure you were fed and not sick if, if they literally owned you. Mm-hmm. Um, but now they can just kind of like treat you like shit and it's fine if you die because there's a million other people to take your place. Yeah. And uh, that is also classic Marxism. I mean, that's uh, wage slavery. Is, mm-hmm. I mean, that's uh, something that is sort of eschewed nowadays. If you don't want to be insensitive or something, but it's... a it's a variety, I would say. It's it's a different form of slavery without some of the unique cruelties, but with others. Yeah, yeah. I want to be careful about that because, yeah, I think you could be seen as insensitive to say, oh, it's exactly the same thing. Like, yeah, there's not the racial element. I mean, there is a racial element. It's different. Yeah. But it's... It's not chattel slavery. Yes, yes. Um it is wage slavery. So I, I think this this quote does a really good job of explaining it. Uh, this is later on in the book. It says, if he does not like the hire's condition, he need not accept them. He can refuse to work and he can go starve. He is a free man and he enjoys perfect liberty. He has the right to choose freely which he will do. Submit or starve. Eat dirt or eat nothing. Damn. Like, that is the fucking crucible in which we are all snared. Yep. And you will occasionally actually get them to basically say that, like capitalist supporters, you know, Mm -hmm. they will not want to initially and they'll claim, oh, no, like that's not, oh, it's freedom, freedom, freedom. But when you boil it down, when you get to it, you can sometimes get them to admit that right there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I see it all the time. Like someone is talking about how um, a fast food worker shouldn't make, you know, X amount of money. It's like, do you? They need that to live. And, <laughs> and, 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 and you need, the, or quote unquote need, or you want this service. Yeah. This is something that you it think should be away. provided. And you complain if they don't have enough people working and it's not done fast enough. Mm-hmm. So clearly you think it should be done. You just think shouldn't. they should die. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I think this is in a later lecture as well. We're going to be kind of like jumping forward with these lectures. So if you're trying to follow chronologically... Good luck. Sorry. Yeah. We're, go- we're going to get back to the plot part in a minute. Although I will say, just an aside, mm-hmm. graphic novel-wise, mm-hmm. that when you're saying about the, the early part of this lecture that happens in the cave, uh-huh. uh, that was like li- frame by frame, you know, when you were saying um, like what they said their causes were. Oh, the, yeah. It's like drink, then oh. too lazy, then uh, women, then educate. Like they did that. Oh, okay. Like so in order. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Did, then they didn't expand on any of them? Uh, not really. So like yeah. one of them says, another thing is women. There's thousands of them nowadays doing work. What ought to be done by men? That's very similar to the book. That's like pretty much lifted. And then, uh, Lyndon says, in my opinion, there's too much of this here education nowadays. 
What the hell is a good education for the likes of us? Yeah, that's totally, yeah. And it's, but they just have like one sentence each. I don't mm-hmm. know if they go on in the book, but... They, they're they pretty descriptive, but that, that to me sounds very similar. I, I could go back and check. No, I just... It was cool to follow along like that. Like, oh, oh, this is <laughs> totally. exactly what I read. Great. Oh. <laughs> uh. Okay, so another thing he talks about, um, he makes an analogy to um, a house, which I really like this analogy. He says, suppose some people were living in a house. Suppose they were always ill, and suppose that the house is badly built, the mm. walls so constructed that they drew and retained moisture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> he says, if you were asked to name in a word the cause of the ill health of the people who lived there, you would say, the house. All the tinkering in the world would not make that house to fit, fit to live in. The only thing to do with it would be pull it down and build another. Well, we're all living in a house called the money system. And as a result, most of us are suffering from a disease called poverty. There's so much the matter with the present system that it's no good tinkering at it. Everything about it is wrong and there's nothing about it that's right. Yes. Yes, correct. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) What's interesting about Owen is I do think he's really good at analogies and metaphors. And I think he's really good at speaking to his fellow workers in a way they can understand. Mm Mm-hmm. My issue, and I don't know if you picked up on this, especially because the dialects come across a little differently in the graphic novel, is Owen and Barrington, the main socialists in this book, are the only ones who speak more proper English. Ah, okay. And to me, I think especially because like the the book adaptation is so much heavier accented, Mm -hmm. it can come across as kind of like elitist. Like Uh I would have loved to see like a super cockney guy be the main socialist in this. Yeah. So my interpretation at the in reading it was just that the dialect style was good for like setting like uh, setting the setting and, mm-hmm. and kind of showing where they are in their class and everything. But once you got into the meat of, Hey, let's try to deliver a message mm-hmm. that fell by the wayside in favor of the, uh, of just clarity is how I took yeah. it. But I see what you're saying of like, they both come across as more educated in that <laughs> sense, you know, of uh, maybe being uh, elitist or well, not intentionally, but, Coming across as separate from the workers in some way. Yeah, I could kind of see what you're saying because, like, the way the book's dialogue is written, sometimes instead of saying, like, you know, so-and-so said blah, 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 it's more integrated into the paragraph, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. And, like, of course they said, quote, blah, 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 but, like, it won't be as, like, broken out, I guess, into individual lines of dialogue. Mm -hmm. So that kind of makes sense. And I I think that explanation holds because it, it is more about, like, the message and the back and forth of it as opposed to, like, a play or something where it's like yeah. strictly dialogue. Okay. So they're not trying to necessarily recreate or show you exactly how, what everyone was saying. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Sometimes they'll do that. Once they get into the lecture section, they're more like, let's roll. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't hate that. I still, I do think it's kind of a choice. And I think some of the language they use around education and stuff can come across as like a little harsh. So mm, a little bit like, well, the workers are kind of stupid. They call them stupid like a lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. I have a note on it later. They only have, they have the criticism of like, oh, these workers, they e- easily kind of fall for things. Like when they get in, mm-hmm. talk, start talking about elections and stuff later on. And they definitely repeatedly mention the, uh, oh, the likes of us. Yes. Thing. Yes. Uh, but they don't really, in the graphic novel at least, 
spend as much time on like, damn, these guys are dumb. I think in the book they do it a lot. They mm-hmm. are generally always there to follow up with like, it's not their fault. This is the media. This is politicians. Like they're being tricked. The education system's terrible. Like they they make excuses for them. But I think the fact that they say it so much and, and in a really like hatred filled way, like Owen is often just like, fuck these guys. They don't fucking see what's going on, which I get. Like I feel that frustration all the time. Yeah. I think it would bother me way less if, if one of the main socialists like were more working class in, in how they compose themselves. Yeah. Cause then I'd be like, Oh, it's cool. Like you're one of the people like you get it. I don't know why that bothers me so much, but. Does, uh, do they, does he win over workers in the novel too? Like, yes, he does. Okay. That to me sort of, I thought the graphic novel at least showed the capacity of these guys all along his fellow workers all along of like dealing with the shit in their lives and kind of learning from Owen and Barrington of like, Oh yeah. Like that does make sense. Mm -hmm. Like you're making good points. That's how I should see things now. Sort of like they did have this capacity. They weren't, or maybe, you know, but maybe in the book, it's more like some people do, but some people don't. And some people are just really bad. I think, I think they show they have the, mm, I think you're right. They do like get some converts. And I think, that does show the capacity, but I think it's just, they talk about it so much that like, these guys are so fucking stupid. And like, I don't know. It's, I think it's just maybe, I mean, what my big criticism with this book, honestly, is it needed a fucking editor. Like (laughs) it's too long and too repetitive. And like, I loved it. I loved it so much. And some of the quotes are really fucking good. I had a hard time picking quotes, but like, there were points where I'm like, I have read this paragraph before. Like, this is another paragraph where you're going to explain like, XYZ. Like, I already know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the graphic novel didn't suffer as much from that, but it was 336 pages. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, let's keep going with these lectures. We've got, um, he talks about private ownership. This is one of my favorites as well. So, talking about, like, capitalists have monopolized everything that's possible to monopolize. You mm-hmm. know, air, water, earth, everything. And then he gives the, the metaphor, you know, again, of, he loves the metaphor, of... If, if they were to privatize air, mm, yeah. they fucking would. If they could do that, they would. And you would say, oh, it's it's their air. Like, let them use it. You would say, these are their gasometers. And what right have the likes of us to expect them to allow us to breathe for nothing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. and oh, I like this. And when you are all dragging out a miserable existence, gasping for breath or dying for want of air, if one of your numbers suggests smashing a hole in the side of one of the gasometers... You will all fall upon him in the name of law and order. And after doing your best to tear him limb from limb, you'll drag him covered with blood and triumph to the nearest police station. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They do have the air uh, thing in the graphic novel. Oh, great, great. Because that's one of my my favorite metaphors. Because, like, I think we have said that on the show, like, as a joke. Like, totally. Well, and they made the movie Total Recall have that as a plot point. Is that (laughs) people on Mars... That are like in the Mars colony or whatever have to buy air. Oh my god! They have to have like a subscription thing for it. <laughs> I mean, totally. I mean, that is a real thing that like can and probably will happen as we do move into space. Like for sure. Yeah, if you let Elon Musk do it, that's definitely going to happen. For sure. Do they show what a gasometer looks like? No, they just have this like bleak. Oh, very dystopian. Like, yeah. Very Edward Gorey in that panel. I love it. <laughs> yep, that's the smashing a whole thing. Exactly. 
the speech. Sounds like it like is pretty true to the source material. I like it. Yeah. Ooh. Okay, I'm gonna have to buy this. Okay. Next, this is probably the most famous of his lectures. The one you'll see quoted a lot is the great money trick. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is basically the theory of surplus value. But great, do you want to explain the money trick? Because I bet they show it in the novel pretty well. They do, yeah. Uh, in the in the graphic novel, they are sitting down and he's like, okay, finally I'm going to show you how money is the cause of poverty. Yes, because right? the whole time they're like, fuck you, it is. And they keep making fun of him every time because it's just like, oh, sure, like we're not going to pay you now because it's, <laughs> it's bad, right? Uh, and he's like, okay. And he gets the bread. They give him some bread. And then he gets some pocket knives from him. Says these are the raw materials that exist naturally on the earth, right? Mm-hmm. So I already said, we've already agreed these should be for everybody. This is just the bounty of the earth. Now, I represent the landlord in Kappa's class, so so Owen's going to say, I, I have all the raw materials, you know, and my ancestors stole them or whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he has three of the guys be the working class, right? Yes. They have nothing. They have no bread. So so Owen's like, I've got all these, these bread slices. I can't do anything with them. I need these guys to do something with them. So I'm going to do the money trick. So then he's like, okay, I'm going to give you the pocket knives that you gave me. I'm going, you know, I've got coins that I'll give you for cutting up this bread, right? And the knives, like, represent tools and machinery in general. Yes, yeah. They're the instruments of production. Yes. Right, so they basically, to survive, have to do this work to get the coin that he can then charge them for the stuff that they made. (laughs) Right, so they get to work. They get carving, and they and they carve up the little slide, the little pieces. And he's like, "Thanks." And then they give him the coin. You know, he gives them the coins for the wages, and he's still sitting there with all the necessities for life. They've got the coins, and then they have to pay him back what they earned to get a little piece mm-hmm. of the bread. And then he's like, "Mmm, yum," because he gets to eat the extra <laughs> pieces. Uh, and then they just keep, you know, they do it a few more times to show like how many, you know, how this accumulates yeah. over time. Um, and after a while, he has all the cubes and no more slices. So he has to shut down the factory. And the workers kind of joke about doing an unemployed procession or begging. Yeah. Um, I, the chapter ends. Owen gives them a coin for this, for their fake begging. And they all sarcastically praise him and say that he should be in Parliament. um i really recommend reading this scene um there's also a clip on it of it on youtube just search the great money trick i think it's one from one of the movie adaptations but i'm not super sure which one it didn't have it labeled well enough Mm -hmm. in the youtube clip it's really good i think it just does a great like these concepts are so abstract that it really helps to just like see it physically play out yeah and they do the same thing in in the graphic novel too he he shuts down he says that's not my business you know (laughs) i love that (laughs) yeah i agree that was a great part of it it um i think won some of those workers over yeah yeah i mean you would be if you made a similar argument i think with your co-workers and stuff you would reduce them down to sort of if they still wanted to oppose it they would be down to just kind of saying oh, yeah, but this little thing or this little thing, right? They would yeah. be only stuck on, like, details rather than being Which, able to refute the general thing. They absolutely do get bogged down in details later. But 
yeah, for the general, like, hey, this system does not make sense. Like, mm-hmm. great example. A couple more lectures here in the series. We've got Owen explaining. Um, some people think that socialists want to share out the money equally. And he's mm-hmm. like, no, that's who fucking told you that, basically. And no yeah. one is able to give him an answer. <laughs> um, and then he gets into basically explaining the anarchy of production. Um, we have discovered through our comparison that this, I don't think this section exists in the graphic novel. Yeah, yeah, I I could not find it anyway. <laughs> okay, so he draws a chart, and I'll show it to you. Um, he basically places people in in different categories. First section are people who don't work, and mm-hmm. so of course, you know, you kind of put the obvious like beggars um, sure. in here. But he also puts society people, yeah, <laughs> the aristocracy, the landowners, and just anyone who inherits wealth. Very good. Yes, all these people. The don't real, work. the actual, yeah. The actual able-bodied non-workers. <laughs> yes. Next, in the second category, he puts exploiters of labor. Um, he also puts thieves, swindlers, pickpockets, burglars, bishops, financiers, uh, <laughs> yes. capitalists, uh, shareholders, ministers of religion. So, which one does he think is worse compared to the between those two, you know? like <laughs> I don't think he says that specifically. Um <laughs> They make comparisons later, mm. but yeah. Um, and then in section three, all of those who are engaged in unnecessary work. And then four, all those engaged in necessary work. So things you actually need to like fucking live. Mm-hmm. And then the fifth section is unemployed. So let me guess though. <laughs> the necessary work is not some sort of barracks communism thing of like, oh, people who produce food and people who produce shelter, but basically nothing else, right? It also has people who produce culture and stuff, too. Yeah, so he does include that maybe later. I don't know if it's in this lecture. I know Barrington definitely talks about culture and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this, he's what he's talking about in terms of unnecessary work, his example that he gives is, hey, if you go downtown, you'll see you know a million shops that are selling the same fucking thing. <laughs> We don't need this. Like advertising. Advertising, <laughs> multiple brands, um, you know, shopkeepers who are just trying to sell you like the same thing. Like you could absolutely consolidate all that stuff. And then also he's like things we don't need, like rich people shit, basically like ridiculous okay. rich people shit. Yeah. So he explains that although um, the people in the fourth section are producing all the useful goods, the vast majority of these goods go to people in sections one and two. So people who don't work and people who exploit. Much of it is wasted, and they live in extraordinary decadence. And since workers are not paid for the actual value of their work, they can't afford to live. The, some of the men are like, well, you know, they, they own the machines that make these things. Mm-hmm. And Owen replies, who made the machines? <laughs> the guys, the dudes. <laughs> and if you want to talk about inventors, like most of those guys aren't rich. Usually they mm-hmm. like are toiling in obscurity. Yeah. Um, and you again, you can't claim all of human knowledge before you. You you are building no like you are building on top of other ideas. Yeah, there. I think that's a that's a big element, especially it seems like for English socialists. Yeah, that that's this notion of you really only should be getting credit for what you do versus what all of society before you has done. You know, it mm-hmm. seems like a theme that. The Diggers said as well, uh, and and the uh, Luddites, and I, it, it was this. You can't claim. Right. And this sort of anti-inheritance. like inheritance and I'd say and, anti-patents, too. Mm, yeah. 
like that's good for like the life your lifetime maybe but you can't pass that on this lecture ends interestingly where where some of the men are like well you know it's always been this way it's always going to be this way and what's interesting is in in the book that it's kind of described as them feeling relief at this idea because mm. like you could tell some of them were getting freaked out by this yeah and there was kind of like a well i don't fucking think about this anymore <laughs> which i found very relatable I think, yeah, I think that's a genuine response that a lot of people have mm-hmm. to questions of socialism because it is sort of cognitively dissonance. Absolutely. Uh, that, and they talk about this in, in the graphic novel as well at times. It's like, this is what people are taught is correct. Mm-hmm. Like, this society is, may have some problems, but is generally like a just world, a just society sort of thing. The people who set it up are good and leaders and role models that should be looked up to, uh, you know, our government, whether that's, you know, his government that he's looking at or the U.S. government or whatever, whatever capitalist system you've got. We're all buying into it. Yeah, you're supposed to buy into it as a good citizen and member of society and all this. You get like, you don't know that it's propaganda. Propaganda is not like just big you know old style posters that are like we want you to do this you know, it's mm-hmm. it's much more subtle yeah it's what Gramsci called like the common sense of society mm-hmm. that that dominant uh, ideology that you don't realize you're in yeah i mean it, it is the very just everything it, it you are in it you're yeah. swimming in it and it's not part of it's purposeful part of it's just people expressing themselves from their point of view of class interest sort of thing and it just happens that way but it it makes sense for people to feel uncomfortable seeing that is very matrix moment of like oh shit what am i in you know i i think so (laughs) and i think the book does a good job of both like the workers that are you know being told this information and then owen too definitely struggles with it and barrington too of like fuck this sucks <laughs> yeah like how can i you know how do i keep going yeah i know these things i'm trying to help my friends see these things and they they can't or you know some of them do some of them don't it's rough yeah <laughs> we're <laughs> and, here for you and you guys yeah you guys probably feel this too you know you're i do wish i could turn my brain off <laughs> many times <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so we are going to wrap up the lecture series. Thank you, Professor Owen. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to like the actual plot. We're going to go through this pretty quickly because mm-hmm. there's a lot to get through. Um, some points I may combine into just like, hey, here's what happens with the rest of that storyline so we don't have to come back to it. Uh, because this book jumps around quite a bit. Yeah. It makes for a great read, honestly. But, it's a um, cool like passing of time. Definitely. They, they, they show like... The, the cycles, the seasons. I was going to say, I bet like the, the graphic novel does that. Because I sometimes I'd have a hard time keeping up. Like, what fucking month is it? Like, Because it, it felt like it would jump really fast sometimes. Like, oh, it's it's Christmas again. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Back to the work site. After, you know, their, one of their lecture series, they uh, have to get back to work. And now we are introduced to Hunter. Ooh. He has a lot of nicknames. <laughs> and they're all unflattering. Uh, Old Misery, Nimrod, and Pontius Pilate. <laughs> so like really beloved clearly <laughs> can i see a pic of him because i bet he looks i'm picturing yeah. the critic from ratatouille <laughs> Ooh, yeah totally totally he looks like he is kind of like he looks yeah. like the bad guy from uh that really shitty meet the robinsons movie i don't, I don't think i've actually ever seen it i've just seen commercials of it <laughs> um yeah he's cartoonishly evil looking really long face 
brown mustache, beady eyes. Just, yeah, caricature guy. Absolutely. <laughs> He's described in the book as having a coffin-shaped face, which is just oh, horrific. exactly what they did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy is the manager of the firm. Um, he is chiefly in charge of finding and pricing out jobs. Uh, he also handles funeral arrangements for the town. Mm-hmm. He's, like, super ugly, as we mentioned. <laughs> He's worked for this company for 15 years, and he earns 2.5% profit on the business. Mm, okay. What is interesting, and I think they do a good job of explaining, though, is his kind of mania is brought on a lot by how hopeless he sees his own situation. Yeah. So I've got a quote here. Uh, Hunter was but an employee, liable to dismissal like any other workman. The only difference being that he was entitled to a week's notice instead of an hour's notice and was but little better off financially than when he started for the firm. Hunter knew now that he had been used, but he also knew that it was too late to turn back. So it's really setting up like a chain of abuse here of like Rushton is constantly nagging Hunter to save more money and Hunter is constantly nagging the men to save more money. Yeah, yeah. And they they do a good job of that in the graphic novel too of showing... It's it's not early on. It's a great, you know, uh, storytelling feature of like, oh, this guy's such an asshole. Yeah, you think it's just black and white, like this guy fucking sucks. Yeah, and then they kind of reveal, like, as they go, like, oh, hey, here's the pressures he's under, too. Doesn't excuse him, but does, like, make it make sense versus just a random evil guy. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I do appreciate that. Like, even, like, the worst fucking characters in this book, like, they'll do some god-awful shit and they'll still be like... I mean, that's what you do here. That's mm-hmm. what, that's how you get by. Yeah. So we, we are introduced to Hunter. He stalks the grounds. He does this all the time. He's trying to catch people not working. Mm-hmm. He's constantly threatening to fire people, to make them scared. He doesn't um, want them uh, working alone in, like, he, or with the door shut. Yes, working you know? with the door shut. And what's funny, like they describe a lot of times is, you know, they work worse when he's there because they're nervous. Because mm-hmm. they're scared they're going to fucking get fired. Hunter's... Other chief job is what's called scamping, which I think that is a fun term, (laughs) (laughs) but it's not a fun thing. This is basically just pulling some bullshit. Yeah. (laughs) There's probably a better word for that, but uh, one of his primary functions is to to cut corners. That's the word, cut corners. Okay. It's shady as fuck. (laughs) It can be anything from... Oh, you asked for, you know, one, three coats of paint. We're just going to do one and say we did three. Yeah. Inferior materials. Rushing jobs is a huge thing. You know, usually if you're painting a house, you want to clean the walls off first, Um, especially the woodwork, because these are like often intricate houses. You know, we're talking like early 1900s England and, you know, you're painting like a fucking paneling or something really intricate. Like you have to clean that first because otherwise it just gets really blobby. Um, They don't have time for that. (laughs) Uh, No sanding, you know, fewer coats of paint and wallpaper. This also includes some dangerous stuff. Like you don't get to have a guy at the bottom of the ladder. Just go. Yeah. Good luck. (laughs) Employing really dangerous chemicals because it dries faster. Shit like that. Um, Like you mentioned the door shutting thing, um, discouraging basically any opportunity for joy on the work site. Mm -hmm. Um, no talking to your fellow workers, no singing. Singing at one point, yeah. Singing, yeah, that was really sad. <laughs> um, at one point, like, clients are trying to feed the workers that are in their house. He tells them, no, that's going to be distracting. <laughs> um, encouraging snitching. 
straight up stealing cool shit from people's houses. Like they find mm, yeah. a chandelier and they're like, this is mine now. Like, <laughs> yeah. The graphic novel had, uh, not him, but Rushton. Rushton. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Both Hunter and Rushton definitely do that. Yeah. And there's like some really funny stories of this. I, I think the stealing ones are especially funny. Yeah. Um, they like, you know, find stuff in storage and they sneak it out and then they have to like sneak it back in because somebody asks about it. Like it's fucking funny. Yeah. They had that with the, the blinds. The blinds where they like had already cut it down to a different size. So they oh, had to remake I, them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's ridiculous. Um, so all of this is, is in deep contrast with like the love of craft that Owen has, which we see later. Mm-hmm. Um, mm, definitely yeah. inspired by Morris again of like this is a man who loves doing his work and doing it well and like taking his time and making stuff beautiful like all that kind of stuff yeah um whereas in this system they are constantly rushing yeah they do that with in when they're doing the cave mm-hmm. and he wants to do the fancy room yes. that's like japanese inspired and owen's like okay yeah i mean i can i have to draw up this and do that and everything and he and Hunter's just like, like, how fucking cheap can you do? Like, how <laughs> how fast can you do this? How yes. cheap can you do this? You know, really pressuring him. It ends. I think it ends up looking pretty good. I think he kind of holds his own as mm-hmm. much as he can on that. But, but he that, realized to fight them on it. Yeah, like every step of the way, it's like he, I need this. I he need had this. to maneuver too. Like he was like, oh, like could I? I need a day to stay at home to like draw the plans. Do you think he can do that? You know, and and he really had to kind of trick them into letting him have the time. He had time. to bend over backwards. Like, some of it he did on his own time, even. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Yeah. That's definitely a theme throughout, is the how shitty everything gets because of capitalism. Like, mm-hmm. how capitalism is making things shittier. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, great pains are made to say, like, this isn't just because they're lazy or something. It's because they're trying to save money. Like, and, and it has a, a really wide effect because, you know, the, some of the men on the team, especially the older ones, are like, you used to hire, like, twice the number of men for this job and take twice as long. Yeah, and it would be twice as good as the actual, like, yeah. result of that. You know? Yeah, but... It would last. It would look cool, mm-hmm. you know, and we're stuck in the hell world where <laughs> it's not, where it sucks and you worked harder to do it. You didn't get paid as much. People yeah. are unemployed. Like, all the bad things happened. Yeah, just for one group of people to pocket <laughs> all that. And it does also, I think, do a good job of saying, you know, with the pressures on Hunter, he's kind of the expression of this. Because you never have any sympathy for the the full-on capitalist guys, mm-hmm. you know. But this notion that it's not like they're just a sinful Mm-hmm. company leadership or something it's it's not just one bad guy right all they're they're doing this because they have to cut down the prices to compete with the other firms all the other firms are doing the same fucking thing yeah so because of that crazy anarchy in production you have this ruthless cutting down of everything and that falls down not just on the workers in bad conditions but on everyone who has to buy the shitty things that they're churning out Absolutely. Like you see time and time again, the customer's getting absolutely screwed over in this. Like everyone is getting screwed over by this. And is this over? No. No. Like, God, have you seen like houses being flipped today? Like they're made out of fucking cardboard. Yeah. It's in the housing (laughs) industry. Literally everything. Everything. When's the last time that you were unfortunate enough to have to call a customer service line? You probably did not get a human being, (laughs) maybe throughout the whole course of the thing. Like it's so Mm -hmm. hard to get 
in touch with anyone who can solve your problem. In that regard, everything is slower in terms of just having services delivered to you. Like Every industry, like you know, we have our food episodes that we talked about, like that is all profit driven and results in lower quality. Clothing is a huge thing in this. Like we're mm-hmm. so used to having cheap available clothing, but like nothing lasts anymore. Yeah. Back to Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, we're kind of introduced to him, you know, one sneaking around, uh, but he also hires a guy for less pay by uh, kind of intimating that the pay is what other people are already receiving. Mm. Um, this guy's name is Newman, which of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> He's the new man. He's the new man. Um, and yeah, he basically is like, okay, the pay is, the pay is this. And the guy's like, he knows he thinks that's low, but he's too scared to like say anything. Cause he needs a fucking job. Yeah. In this first few scenes, Hunter also catches Jack Linden smoking and fires him. Owen actually visits Linden later to, to try to tip him off about a potential job. And we get to see his house, which he's lived in for 30 years and is always working on it. And he doesn't own it because he fucking rents. Yeah. And so he's like, put all this work into this beautiful house. And all his landlord does is say, well, this house is nicer. So I'm going to raise your rent. Ah, uh, <laughs> lovely. Very cool. Rewarded for your work. Meritocracy. Cool. Linden never gets employed again throughout the book. Um, I think at some point he tries like selling food on the street or something. Hmm. Um, his sons stop supporting him because he's, he's the guy who took on his daughter-in-law uh-huh. and they're like, well, we didn't agree to take care of her. So like, I'm not going to pay for this. Oh, wow. Yeah. Real piece of shit. I think they have him carrying something on his head or something selling like bread or I don't mm-hmm. remember what it was, but they see him in the streets at some point. His daughter-in-law has to sell off most of the furniture in the house, including a clock that her deceased husband made for, like, his mom. Mm -hmm. Um, We later find out that Mr. Sweater has bought it to go in his fancy uh, Japanese-style room. Oh, lovely. (laughs) Uh, Mary becomes very weak with overwork from all this. Jack eventually applies for, like, assistance, like government aid, and a few weeks later they receive a letter that, since this is a chronic case... They cannot help, which like, what the fuck other kind of case are you supposed to help with? Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, they had a, you're supposed to go to this other agency or mm-hmm. very, very little, you know, you're in the wrong line bureaucracy. Thing. Definitely. <laughs> so he eventually goes to the board of guardians who force him and his wife to go into the workhouse um, so that Mary and the children can receive assistance. Um, Mary um, actually moves in with the Eastons mm-hmm. uh, to make this work. So yeah, he basically is is run out of his fucking home and is is sent to the workhouse and he eventually dies a pauper's death. Uh, By which, I mean, his uh, a pauper's grave is just like the as possible funeral and like... It's just a common grave. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think only his initials are on the coffin. Yeah. um, And they only realize it's him because they see his sons there. Yeah, so they they mentioned he's forced into the the workhouse. Mm Mm-hmm. Workhouses are terrifying. I remember I watched a documentary on that in college. What the fuck? Yeah, this stems from the English poor laws, and we want to do a little bit about that. Yeah, so th- this is a, a phrase that comes up a couple of times. Poor rates. Uh, Easton is struggling to pay his poor rates. A lot of the people are. What the fuck are poor rates? So this was essentially stemming from the poor laws in England. I'm not sure specifically like how the poor rates worked. My understanding of it was it was a form of tax mm-hmm. uh, on the people in a uh, in a county 
I think it's a county level or parish level thing. The people there would be taxed in order to provide for the poor, and that would fluctuate based on how many people, how many poor people you had there that had to be provided for, and in, in, that's in big quotes provided for. Mm-hmm. Uh, As we'll see, <laughs> it's, so it's it's interesting because it's a long process that people think they're improving on the previous situation. Mm-hmm. So the world they're in, right? Uh, they're dealing with the poor laws, the new poor laws is what they call them, started in 1834. Okay. Uh, where it was a reform of the previous, poor, the old poor law, uh, which was from like the 1500 or the 16, 1601. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the idea here was the old system cost too much. Uh, the rates were going too high. Uh, it was too expensive. This sort of thing. So the the idea was we're going to make things uh, stricter. Uh, we're going to uh, make it to where uh, it's it sucks basically. <laughs> it's te- conditions are terrible. No one would go to the workhouse unless they were desperate. Mm-hmm. Is the idea you want fewer people going to your workhouse? Mm-hmm. So it has to be worse than every other job, uh, and. You have, had to cut out what was called out relief or outdoor relief, which was relief like in terms of just giving people like bread or money or something. So no more charity. Yeah. No, well, not charity necessarily, but through the government, like distribution oh, okay, of okay. anything. No local governments or, or what have you could do any of that because that was going to like prevent people from. It's going to lead to, you know, people choosing not to work. <laughs> Because okay. they could just get that relief. Sure. So they said, we can't have that. They, the only relief that they can get should be the workhouse or find a job. Right? That was the reform that they did. And, and, and it, it was terrible in that they would force people into these basically prisons. Yeah. Uh, where they were working them and purposefully setting things up to be shitty. Yeah. But where it came from was not really any better. Uh, the old the old poor law, the Elizabethan poor law, was a similar situation. The the people who couldn't work were sent to poor houses or alms houses. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we're just going to care for these people. Not that these were great conditions there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the able-bodied poor were put into workhouses of their own. These eventually get too expensive, and that's why they wanted to do the reform thing. And then the idle poor or vagrants would just be sent to prison. Wow. That itself was an improvement on the previous oh system there. Where back in Tudor times, they just started criminalizing, like, being around. Like, this is where just you loitering. have vagrancy laws, mm-hmm. any of that. And it was really draconian. Wow. Uh, it had to do with the labor shortage after the Black Yes, death, yes. I've heard about this. So, like, whenever you have such a drastic decrease in population, you lose all your workers on your land. And, like, workers are like, oh, I can get paid more if I go down the road. And they're like, well, I don't like that. So we're going to make it illegal to be, like, traveling, basically. Yeah, <laughs> Like, yeah. you had to, like, have permission to, like, leave your land and go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. They were, they were really cracking down on vagabonds traveling mm-hmm. around like that beggars uh this this one here interest that i found in 1547 the vagabonds act was passed that subjected vagrants to two years servitude and a branding with a v 
as the penalty for the first offense. Fuck. And death for the second. Okay. Damn. Yeah. So the the poorhouse, the poorhouse, the workhouse, were bad. Yeah. Yeah. Comes from bad things. Still bad. <laughs> yeah. It was like seen as an improvement at the time <laughs> because of how terrible shit was before. Jesus then. Christ. And so the characters living during that time, you know, that's what they're talking about with the, mm-hmm. the poor rates of supporting, you know, these prisons to make people work mm-hmm. um, that are billed as this sort of relief effort to make sure, oh, no one's starving. Uh, we just enslave them and <laughs> feed them little bits of scrap. And this is, uh, I mean, that's what Charles Dickens was criticizing in Oliver Twist when he's like, can I have some more? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, that he was in... The workhouse. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, from this, we know now that that is like the worst level, basically, right? But we are spending so much time with these workers, and they are shown it's still a horrible level of conditions. Like, they are constantly starving. Mm-hmm. Like, there are months where they're not getting enough nutrition, and like, people are just constantly weak. You see the boy, uh, Frankie Owen, like, get weaker over the book, mm-hmm. um, depending on his father's employment. Yeah. And it's really fucking heartbreaking. And if you think, oh, there's a level under that, that's terrifying. Yep. And that's part of what capitalism demands. Yeah. Is a is a, the threat of starvation. Yes. The threat of of just withering away. There has to be a punishment for I mean, you know, and that's part of why they were freaking out about they're they're freaking out currently about labor shortage stuff and all mm-hmm. that, and they're every every time there's one of these tech layoffs, you see in in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, they're just like licking their lips. They're like, oh it. man, tough times are coming again. The job market's <laughs> gonna tighten up, and they they're, you're just they're just like salivating. Man. So and like I think one thing you notice about this book because it is so long and because it is told over like a year and some change. You see the very cyclical nature of this because the men go from unemployed, like mass unemployment to, oh, great, we got work in. Um, and so we're working like fucking 14, 15 hour days. Also bad, like you're fucking exhausted and killing your body that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you're back to lean times and you're killing your body by starving and by massive debt. And um, they talk a lot about, uh, Terry Pratchett does it, does, has a good paragraph on this too of, of you know, it costs more to be poor, you know, yeah. because like you, if you buy shitty boots, mm-hmm. they wear out faster than nice boots, but you can't afford the nice boots. So a lot of those kinds of stories are told here too, where people are just constantly paying off small debts and then having to pay off like the interest on that. Like they're just trapped in this yeah. whole thing. So the, I mean, I, that was one of my, my review points is like, I think this book does a really great and visceral job of showing just the horrors of this, of, I mean, this time period specifically, but like absolutely applies to current day yeah just a matter of degrees absolutely let's talk a little bit about easton we're not going to get into all of his storyline here but um we're gonna set it up a little mm-hmm. um we we follow easton home back on that that first day of the book um back to his modest house he rents with his wife ruth and his baby freddie uh we learn a little bit about ruth's background as a former servant uh to mrs starvum yeah. uh, who was uh, who's this very like religious character who gave her a Bible with a super like loving inscription. And they're like, yeah, she treated her like shit. So <laughs> uh, this book has a lot of anti-religious themes. So yeah. Uh, Your mileage may vary. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was fucking funny. 
Uh, but even I thought some of them were mean. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> I, so I never took it as... And well, I took it as anti like, anti hypocrisy. Yeah, hypocritical religion. They they mm-hmm. really target that church, that one church and and make fun of you know because they're being so charitable and all this, but they're also you know being lavish toward their priest or whatever. Yeah, I would um, agree. It is more more anti hypocritical than just straight up anti religion. Um, so the couple, the Eastons, they talk about fan- finances, and I think this is a really fascinating look into like domestic labor and and what it must have been like to be a couple in that time period Mm -hmm. um they're they're constantly in debt and easton is like kind of blames ruth he's like you must be not managing right this right and like what the fuck how like i give you all this money what do you do with it and Mm -hmm. then like he does the math right there and he's like oh fuck (laughs) (laughs) like he's just as much trouble making it work yeah He's he's kind of he. I guess he had never engaged with it before and was just like, whoa, okay. <laughs> yeah, Damn. like he didn't realize it got that bad, and um, they end up having to pawn their good clothes and uh, decide to take on a tenant. They end up taking on slime. Um, it sucks. Like they immediately regret it because they're like, there's a fucking stranger in our home. This sucks. Yeah. Easton is starting to spend more time at the bar to suck up to Crass. Uh, there's a really rowdy scene of him and crass and like the boys all drinking and playing it's called shove half a penny or something i did not understand this game i read that description a few times and it's something to do with like rubber bands and the coin i don't fucking know (laughs) they didn't i mean they were just there was the scene but it wasn't like explained or anything they were just out drinking they're playing bar games they're drinking yeah uh spending more time at the bar and meanwhile slime is kind of growing on Ruth a little. He's like really friendly with the baby mm-hmm. and but eventually he kind of crosses the line and becomes obvious that like he has a thing for her and it makes her real uncomfortable. Back to Owen. After he visits Jack Linden, he comes home. Um on his way home we we get to meet Frankie, who is just adorable. Um he's asking his mother okay. about poverty. He says, You know, I've been thinking lately that it's a great mistake for dad to go out working at all. I believe that's the very reason we're so poor. Dad says the people who do nothing get lots of everything. (laughs) (laughs) He should just be a capitalist. You know, like, that's what dad should do. Yeah, has he tried being rich? (laughs) Uh, And and his mom, like, very patiently explains, and I would say very eloquently explains, kind of capitalism to, like, a a child. And Mm -hmm. she explains, like, yeah, some people make money without working. Um, This is how they do it. Um, she gives examples of like shopkeepers, employers, uh, vicars. She definitely goes off about the the vicars. So yeah, I, I really recommend reading that scene if you can find it online. It's it's pretty fucking funny. <laughs> Owen, uh, he's very worried. He's worried about the future. He's worried about his kid. That is, I think, really touching. That that is always his primary worry. Is what um, kind of world are we going to make for him? Sort of thing. Absolutely, and and you know he sees how sweet his son in, is, and he's like, the system currently rewards selfishness. Like I don't think he's going to fucking make it. You know. Mm-hmm. This one is also heartbreaking. He reads about the double murder and suicide of a worker. Was that in the graphic novel? No. Oh, so he reads this newspaper story about this guy who kills his family and then himself with like a razor blade. Mm-hmm. Um, and his suicide note said, this is not my crime, but society's. Wow. And Owen like empathizes with this guy. He's like, I fucking get it. And he even like contemplates it himself. And he's like, well, I would use poisoning. Like he looks at a book about poison. Like it's fucking creepy, man. Like he is so just terrified of 
because he knows he's sick too. So mm-hmm. he's like, after I'm gone, like, what the fuck are they gonna do? Yeah. Wow. No, they left that part out. It's real fucking dark. <laughs> <laughs> Owen later on is chatting with Easton, and he says, um, you know, he explains. A lot of the men in the book say, well, you know, I wish there was more work. We just need more work. Yeah. Um, just need more jobs. And he's like, is that really what you want? Because, <laughs> like, that's 16 hours of fucking hard labor every day. Like, that's also bad for you. Mm-hmm. And I think this quote is also really good and still applies today. Um, if it were proposed to make a law that all working men and women were to be put to death, smothered or hung or poisoned or put into a lethal chamber... As soon as they reach the age of 50 years, there's not the slightest doubt that you would join in the uproar of protests that would ensue. Yet you submit tamely to have your life shortened by slow starvation, overwork, lack of proper boots and clothing, and though having often turn out and go to work when you are so ill that you ought to be in bed receiving medical care. Still true, not to this level, but poor people have the shortest fucking life expectancy. That is the biggest factor in how long you'll fucking live. Yep. So, like, this system is literally killing us. Yeah. It's taking years off your life. And, I mean, they have this same scene in the graphic novel, word for word. And this is the <laughs> this is the panel of uh, Easton, af- like, af- at the end of that. <laughs> He's just like, huh? She's, like, horrified. <laughs> Little beady-eyed. He's like, what? <laughs> uh, <sighs> but, yeah, like. People are doing it just to, you know, just to survive. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I guess, again, it goes goes back to what do you accept as possible or what are you taught has to be versus cannot be? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we've talked about so many times the the cost of living. That is literally what this is. Yeah. And I don't know, it goes, it kind of ties back into, you know, our previous episode talking about how badly they fucked up Nicaragua is... That was done to tear down a possible alternative hope. Yeah. Of what could you do instead? Like, could you not trim off this much, this many years of your life? Like, (laughs) what if we produced for people's needs? That sort of a thing. That's why. You know, they have to have this harsh. They have to have a threat. Yeah. Whether it's a poor house or working six jobs or whatever, you know. Yeah. All right. That's where we're going to leave it off for now. Just jumping back in to say, join us next time for part two. Bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube, if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. 
Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.